And we're back here on Unusual Sources, 93.3 CFMU-FM, broadcasting to Hamilton at 93.3 on the FM dial and the rest of the world at cfmu.ca. Don't forget that. That's the new address, cfmu.ca, live streaming anywhere in the world. And we're very pleased to have our special guest today on the program, and that is K.J. No. He's activist, writer, scholar, uh, scholar of the Asia-Pacific region and the geopolitics inherent within, uh, writes great articles for Counterpunch and other publications, and we have him joining us here today. So uh, thank you, K.J., for joining us on the program today. Thank you so much, Brendan. Delighted to be with you. Well, it's really a delight. As soon as I saw your articles coming at late 2020 and your interviews and other participation in activism, I knew we had to get this out more to Hamilton. And you had that one article I was thinking of in particular. It's called, The U.S. is Set on a Path to War with China. What is to be done? And that was in October last year. And you've been developing your thoughts on that. And it really fits into what we're doing in Hamilton. We've had an anti-war organization going on, and uh, we, we always joke we never have to change our name because there's always the war, and it's, it's getting worse. This war on terror, the whole domination of Central Asia, some aspects of it are winding down, others are heating up, but it's become more clear over the last decade that the plan was kind of to remove any threat to U.S. hegemony. And going forward, we can see how something similar is shaping up with China. And in your articles, you've suggested that the United States approach to China is a direct continuation or at least a legacy of the project for a new American century, that whole Bush gang, the neoconservatives and others, their wars in Central Asia, the maintenance of the hegemony, we see a continuation or a legacy with China. Why do you think there's a connection between the 20 years of the war on terror and the increasing U.S. activity with regard to China? That's a really great question, Brendan. And I think that is the key issue that we have to deal with. Uh, in order to understand that, we have to dial back a little bit and look to the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, starting around the time of the fall of the Soviet Union, and actually even before the actual fall, there was a real triumphalism in the West. Uh, and at the same time, there was apprehension and concern that they would have to contain and fight China. Uh, there were others who believed that China would fall, like the USSR, and others who believed that China would become the next great uh, challenger to the United States. Now, remember, at this period, in this Cold War triumphalism, there was really the belief uh, in one sector of the imperial ruling class that we truly were at the end of history, that all uh, civilizations, all culture, all structures had to converge to liberal democracy or neoliberal democracy. And we saw that with the work of Paul Wolfowitz and his neocon gang, they actually wanted to lock up the gains that the West, the capitalist West had made. They saw it as an opportunity for, in their words, unipolar global hegemony. And China was marked out early on this. They had this plan 
This was uh, codified in the defense planning guidance document of 1992. The Pentagon had to disavow it because it was so embarrassing, but it was reformulated into the 1997 Wolf uh, Project for the New American Century and then the 2000 Rebuilding America's Defenses. So very, very early on, there were plans against China. And of course, this goes back to a much longer and older tradition in 1965, McNamara pointed out that they were waging war against Vietnam in order to contain China and so on and so on. We can go take this back, uh, back to the 17th century, but essentially this is a long uh, standing plan. And this, uh, th there's a direct uh, trajectory uh, with the fall of the United, uh, with the fall of the USSR, uh, and the current antagonism uh, with China right now. Yes, you know one of the senses I get from your written material in general is that we're dealing with lineages. You know, we're dealing with legacies and lineages. For example, this crew that worked with Bush and others in the U.S. administration to devise plans for Russia, to devise plans for Central Asia, were, of course, and are still working on plans related to China. And we're talking about people like John Bolton as one of the more visible figures. But that whole team has been working continuously. And in a broader sense, we're still looking at how to manage China and how to subordinate China. You point out, or you like pointing out, that... Um, a lot of these fellows were nurtured in Ivy League institutions. Uh, those institutions, those schools had been funded partly through the opium trade and through the oppression of China. So um, this is all very consistent with a general phenomenon of colonialism. Absolutely, yes. So one of the things that I try and trace back is uh, I show the genealogy and the lineage of the thinking because there is a clear ideology and a clear project. And it's, uh, it uh, crystallizes with the project for a new American century, but it actually predates it. I, I trace it back to um, Andrew Marshall, who was often referred to as Yoda. He was the Pentagon's oracle. And he, for 42 years, he uh, directed its internal think tank, the Office of net assessment. He was the advisor to 12 secretaries of defense, but he had two key obsessions. One was U.S. military supremacy, first against the Soviet Union uh, and then against China. And he was somebody who kept the Pentagon's gravy train running on time, but he also cultivated a large group of protégés. And, uh, you know, these were uh, Paul Wolfowitz, uh, Dick Cheney, Rumsfeld, Cohen, Andrew Krapinovich, Pillsbury, Herman Kahn, Richard Pearl, Richard Armitage, Michael O'Hanlon. And some of these names should start to ring a bell. They are uh, neocons. You know, these were ideologues uh, and they were mentored into Marshall's worldview. They graduated from, you know, Ivy institutions with gentlemen's C's. Uh, but Marshall was the person who fed them sea rations and just cut their teeth and sharpened their fangs for ideological battle. 
1992, uh, a group of them, you know, penned the defense guidance planning document, which later became the Wolfowitz Doctrine. This later became the project for a new American century. And then uh, at the same time, they started to plan <clears throat> very, very explicit uh, military containment strategies. So early on in this process, they uh, started to plan for the withdrawal from the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty. They started to plan the building of bases in East Asia along the first island chain. Uh, and then in 2011, uh, Hillary Clinton would stage the coming out party. Uh, this was the pivot to Asia. And this was really the brainchild of, uh, you know, uh, the, it was the brainchild of uh, Kurt Campbell, who, is, who currently holds the Asia slash China portfolio in the Biden administration. Yes, I remember the term pivot to Asia. Obama liked talking about it. Really hideous term, moving all sorts of military assets in the region to pen in China. Really, the way they talk about it casually is extraordinary. Uh, but you mentioned ideology. You keep referring to ideology. And of course, the 1990s was supposed to be the end of history, as you say, and the victory of liberal capitalism. And, you know, with the massive recession in 2008, nine, the, you know, invasion and regime change in Libya and this ongoing struggle in Syria and this confrontation with China, it's clear that history is not over. It's far from over. And it relates to how the United States sees China. You mentioned these theorists and these people who make policy. There was not unanimous agreement among these people. We're talking about a big tent here, the Pentagon and, and Washington and so on. So you talk about some of the different views in the U.S. administration on how to handle China, for example, in the immediate aftermath of the Cold War. I mean, there are different views on how to move forward on this. So what were some of these, you know, these different views or different approaches and like who ended up winning? Well, yes. So this is this is what took, brought us to this point at this time. So you had Andrew Marshall's group that were really focused on geostrategic dominance, and these people uh, bred and uh, you know drew up the project for a new American century, which gave us the endless wars in the Middle East and North Africa. At the same time, uh, there was another group that called themselves the blue team in Washington. Uh, they also colloquially referred to themselves as the panda sluggers. And they derided the US engagement with China. They called them, they called these people panda huggers and they saw themselves as panda sluggers. Uh, they saw you know, China as this cold war, mortal, irreconcilable communist threat. And so they came together and they formed a loose coalition with the Project for a New American Century. And then they built a series of institutions and policies that were extraordinarily Sinophobic. Uh, you know, they wrote a series of books that were, that created this kind of bizarro world where the Chinese were conspiring with the White House to manipulate and steal, uh, you know, US secrets. Right. Didn't uh, they write some like a B pulp paperback novels about this? Yes, this was um, this was uh, William Triplett and Edward Timberlake. 
and really a, a pulp fiction. They wrote a, a two books called Year of the Rat and Red Dragon Rising. And this was this bizarro world where the Taiwanese lobbyists had Chinese mafia connections and they were acting as agents for the PRC and manipulating the White House. So this kind of conspiratorial mythology, uh, this myth of a dangerous, corrupt, belligerent China, this kind of fed an existing uh, current of paranoid lies about China. Anyway, these people were people like uh, Michael Ledeen, Frank Daphne, Robert Kagan, Bill Kristol, Michael Pillsbury, Bill Geertz, Gary Bauer, Peter Navarro, Elliot Abrams, Richard Skiff, John Bolton, as well as Democrats, Nancy Pelosi, uh, Robert Byrd. And they built these powerful commissions and institutions attacking China. This is the Congressional Executive Commission on China, the US-China Security Review Commission, the Taiwan Security Enhancement Act was also written at this time. And they saturated Congress with this unending litany of Chinese abuses about technology and trade and labor, etc. And eventually, you know, they all came together and this kind of solidified in uh, 2008, uh, 2009. What happened then was prior to that team, prior to that point, you could, you could see that there were three positions on China. It wasn't clear cut, but there were approximately three positions. And one group really saw that China was a Potemkin state. They were the collapsists. They believed that China would collapse like a rotten deck of cards because it was corrupt, it was uh, economically inefficient, there was going to be demo a demographic collapse, it was polluting itself to death. And Gordon Chang was the person who you know, was the most representative of this group. There was another group that were just kind of opportunists and exploiters. And you know, they saw that they could use China as a high profit global sweatshop and externalize production costs and discipline labor in the US. So, so they were profiting from it. And then there were others who believed that once China opens up, it will have to become liberal capitalist or else it will collapse. And, you know, Bill Clinton famously said that, you know, resisting liberalization is like nailing jello to a wall. So these different groups intermingling largely held off the hawks. But the turning point was in 2007, 2008, during the financial crisis, when it became clear that China was not going to collapse. And more than that, it would actually be foolish for China to imitate or subordinate or integrate itself into a collapsing de deck of cards, Western capitalist financial system. And it had its own resilient, independent economy. And when that became clear, then all the, uh, you know, all the daggers came out. It was not going to collapse by itself, and therefore it needed to be nudged over into collapse. And that's uh, the point at which the uh, the actions against China, the preparations against China, took a much more hostile and aggressive turn. 
For those who are just tuning in, I'm speaking with KJ No. He is an activist, writer, and scholar of the Asia-Pacific region, the geopolitics therein, a historian, and someone with a wide depth and breadth of knowledge, of course. And that's why we're grateful to have him on the program today for that and many other reasons. So KJ, I mean, yes, there's been um, nasty policies developed with regard to China, and we can talk a bit about the propaganda aspects of that in a bit. But one of the effects of this, you point out that uh, the ruling establishment made a decision essentially that they were going to contain China or go after it. And this has had quite a number of negative impacts. There's a sinophobia associated with all of this. Uh, they're going after students. There's so many examples. And it seems one of these is that they're ignoring the Chinese experience with COVID-19. The Chinese reacted quick and big to it, and they largely were able to contain the virus. Here, we have not fully taken it seriously. Many prominent politicians downplay it or deny it. And uh, so we have quite a situation on our hands that's ongoing. It seems that not taking the Chinese as partners allows us to do a lot of damage to ourselves. Absolutely. Yes, this is really uh, one of the tragedies of uh, Sinophobia. China is not a threat to the West, but the Sinophobia is a threat to the West itself. The West is hurting itself through the Sinophobia. And one of the most concrete harms of this Cold War has been the inability of the U.S. to understand the West in general, to understand in deal with COVID. So instead of cooperating with China to combat a lethal pandemic, when the COVID outbreak happened in China, it viewed it almost entirely through an ideological lens. That is to say, first it said it was a Chinese virus, the China virus, uh, that rendered it incapable of seeing the magnitude of the threat. They, they were convinced at the early stages that this was uniquely Chinese, caused by Chinese dysfunction, Chinese lack of transparency, Chinese dirtiness, dirty habits of eating. They called it China's Chernobyl. And, and then when China took the necessary measures, non-pharmaceutical interventions, such as lockdowns and uh, uh, social distancing, isolation, testing, tracking, tracing, they characterized all of this as the excesses of an authoritarian uh, state trying to cover up its, you know, uh, uh, faults. And once having done that, it was no longer able to see COVID with any clarity or to understand that what China was doing was absolutely necessary. So they underestimated or they, you know, just misread the magnitude of the threat and then they were incapable of taking the measures that were essential because that would entail first acknowledging China's successes and be copying their quote unquote authoritarian response. And the most concrete example of this is Matt Pottinger who was a key China hawk at the NSC. You know, he kind of commandeered the NSC's pandemic response and instead of taking the necessary uh, measures, testing, tracking, isolation, masking, distancing. He just used it as an opportunity to blame and attack China and spread lies. Uh, and he believed that punishing China through a travel ban would obviate the need for other public health measures. 
uh, and then he refused Chinese aid and, you know, with tests, etc. And this has created such a confusion to this day that, for example, only 30% of Republican leaders in the United States say that COVID is a significant threat. And you see large numbers of the population who are still convinced that COVID is a hoax. And at the same time that you have others who, are, who believe that, you know, it's a Chinese bioweapon. So the, you know, public health is really a race between good information and bad information. And by polluting the information sphere with propaganda against China and, and entrancing themselves into believing their own lies, uh, the West, but especially the United States, you know, really did itself mortal damage. And we are paying for that right now, you know, in the deaths. I think we hit 460,000 deaths uh, just very recently, and it, and it shows no sign of abating. Yes, it's arm in arm with a lot of embarrassments, like the issue of dismissing masks early on. A lot of prominent Western politicians wanted to not be associated with masks or not putting out those recommendations. And it was associated somewhat with China and uh, lots of other problems too, rejecting lockdowns and other successful measures that have even been used in parts of the Western world. It's just inconsistent talk and no one knows what to do. It's a real mess and it's going on and on. So this is not helping us, but of course, President Biden is in now. So this is supposed to be a cause for optimism. He certainly has said he wants to take a more serious approach to tackling the pandemic uh, than Trump. Now, it's very early on in the administration, so it's hard to tell exactly where they're going. But I know you've been watching the Democrats for a while and especially around the time of the election and the lead up to the inauguration. So where do you see Biden's people moving on China, whether it's with relation to trade or medical cooperation or any of these aspects that might uh, differ or continue what was going on with Trump? Well, what I saw very early in the um, Biden administration were some very, very bad signals. During the time of their campaigning, they were campaigning to the right of Donald Trump. They were saying that Donald Trump, if you can believe this, was too weak on China and that they would be even tougher. They would show China. They would put China in their place. This was their you know, uh, campaign platform. And if you look beneath that and you look at the people that they were gathering around them, especially the people connected with the think tank CNAS, Center for New American Security, CNAS is just a rebranding or a rehashing of the project for a new American century. It's just the old uh, uh, PNAC uh, ideology uh, refurbished and uh, you know, recycled uh, for this new administration. I mean, it, it's astounding. So in there you have, uh, you know, people like, uh, you know, really the, you know, the heart of the China hawks, uh, you know, Blinken, Campbell. Kurt Campbell is the architect of the Pacific pivot. Uh, you have Rush Doshi, Eli Ratner, you know, Anthony Blinken, Avril Haines, Jake Sullivan, Laura Rosenberger, she is the person who's responsible for the horrific lies around Russian subversion. I mean, this is 
you know, an ideologue through and through. And of course, Victoria Newland, uh, the neocon par excellence, and the ever histrionic Samantha Power. So this is really, you know, personnel is policy. And you can see that what they've done, and if you can go on to CNES and actually look at their doctrine, they've taken Donald Trump's uh, sinophobic hybrid war, amped it up a few notches, and then worked it out in obsessive detail. And this is going to be the Biden administration's uh, approach towards China. And I can tell you that this will be a catastrophe. It's, uh, um, you know, if it's a kind of definitional, definitional insanity, repeating the same thing and expecting different results. Well, that does sound uh, discouraging. And it sounds, it feels like everything's reaching a kind of terminal phase. Um, and, and we're already in a form of warfare. You do enjoy speaking or writing about um, the hybrid warfare. Uh, and, and that's not a very new concept in the sense we've been dealing it with for a long time. I remember protesting the war on Yugoslavia, and, and it felt as if the U.S. was using all sorts of measures other than war to weaken that government. And we saw that a lot with Iraq and, of course, Libya, Syria, and a lot of other cases. So there's a lot of methods being used at once, but underlying it all is the informational warfare you certainly do write about this and you understand its importance because there's a sense of deja vu here. When the United States starts ramping up their propaganda about a country saying that it's conducting genocide and putting people in camps and we have to act now and we have to send this and this and this to go bother China because they're going to do such and such to a whole lot of people. This is to manufacture consent for what is really euphemistically called kinetic warfare, which, of course, is when things start killing each other. So is this what you're saying, that the frequency of informational warfare is suggesting that kinetic warfare is in the offing? I think so. I think we're getting, getting very, very close to that. When the tenor of the information warfare, the lies, reaches this level of a histrionic pitch, you know that the uh, population is being prepared for warfare. It's, you know, it's that old saw. Those who tell you absurdities are actually preparing you for atrocities. Now, I mean, let me be clear, clear here. I mean, when you hear the term genocide, this is not to say that genocides don't happen and that they shouldn't be condemned and shouldn't be challenged and prevented wherever possible. But when you start to hear the word genocide shouted up and down, and it is clearly a lie, then you have to ask yourself, what's going on here? And the historical track record shows that when we see this level of misinformation, disinformation, outright, uh, you know, atrocity propaganda, then we know that we're being prepared for war. And I believe that this is the case. We're very, very close to it. All the other indicators signal it. We have also seen economic warfare, trade sanctions, tariff war, technological warfare, legal warfare or lawfare. There's diplomatic warfare. There's military brinksmanship. And of course, we have seen an entire year of civil uh, subversion, not to mention 
academic warfare. So it's just ongoing and it's reaching this fever pitch that I think is extraordinarily dangerous, but is also very, very, uh, it's a very, very clear signal. Well, uh, before we finish up by discussing some related issues, perhaps you might want to suggest to listeners some places they could go to get alternative information about the the media war, the propaganda war on China. Um, I know there are, of course, many diligent citizen journalists that are looking to prevent yet another catastrophic war and have been looking at what exactly the New York Times is saying or what the Washington Post is saying. So where would you recommend people go to get information about U.S. Relations with China? Um, one place I would suggest is that they go to peacepivot.org. Peacepivot.org. This is an organization that I am affiliated with, and we're trying to put out the truth of the situation and educate uh, the general public. Uh, I think Code Pink has also been doing some good stuff. There's another organization, No Cold War. Uh, and then there's some, uh, I think uh, the, the Chow Collective uh, has, the Chow Collective also has a, a very good website. Yes. And you know, actually, I had to put together some lists recently. I'd add the Gray Zone to that and uh, a few other publications. There's, there's no Cold War. There's new Cold War. Yeah, there's, there are places people can go and they can, of course, look you up, KJ. No, N-O-H, because you've written very well, very erudite on the subject. Now, I know you like keeping pace with recent developments. Uh, I mean, there's been this activity in Myanmar. It's not something we've covered a lot on this program, but uh, certainly that's a country that has a relationship with China and the United States, I think it wants to be involved there. So what does the U.S. see in terms of its goals with regard to Myanmar? Who's, who's moving things in it? how and why? Yes. Let me just kind of pan out for just a little moment and give you the historical, uh, you know, geopolitical context, because that's important to understand. Myanmar was a British colony. And when the British left, um, they always leave colonies in a much, much worse state than they were before. But when they left, they did what they usually do, which was they created a kind of a chimera or a Frankenstein state, they put together all these different ethnic groups, the Karen, Kareni, Shan, Mon, Chin, Kachin, uh, the Bamas, the Rakhine, they put them all together and they gave them different types of, you know, promises for independence and secession, essentially creating the context for a nonstop civil war. So what we've seen over the past 70 years in Burma is exactly that nonstop civil war, insurgency, counterinsurgency, and uh, ethnic cleansing as well. And you know, this is part of the picture of British colonialism. You saw this in Northern Ireland, Malaysia, Kenya, Sudan, Sierra Leone, Afghanistan, Iraq, Libya, Yemen, South Africa, India, and Pakistan, China, Tibet, Hong Kong, and of course Palestine. Just off the top of my head, where the British uh, leave supposedly, they always leave a legacy of of civil war and uh, ethnic tragedy. But the so inside this context, you know, the Burmese had had a military dictatorship uh, since at least 1962. Uh, They gained independence in 1948. But 
starting from 1962 until really 2015, they had a military dictatorship. Now, start if you remember, the Pacific pivot started in 2011. It was declared by Barack Obama. This was the plan to contain China by encircling it with 400 bases. And remember that Myanmar is on the uh, southern western flank of China. There's a 1,200 mile border with Yunnan province in China. And so as one of the elements of this pivot to Asia, Kurt Campbell, who was the architect of the pivot, in 2009, he went to Myanmar and opened up relations with Burma. And they, you know, worked with the military dictatorship and kind of nudged them to kind of start this process of uh, democratization, quote unquote. Uh, and uh, this was the case. Uh, and there was a slow movement, but it was a very precarious cohabitation with the military. Now, at the same time, as they were building this uh, encirclement of China, one of the key strategies they developed was something called air-sea battle. This was the war doctrine against China. And air-sea battle had war-gamed out that if they choked off the South China Sea and the Malacca Straits, that within months, a shooting war in the South China Sea or disruption at the Malacca Straits would choke off China's economy, would literally strangle China's economy where $5.3 trillion worth of trade travels through and 70% of China's oil. This would bring down China. Now the Chinese saw this happening and so their response first was to build military installations in the South China Sea to raise the cost of, uh, of war in, 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 in that area. But also the other thing they did was they started to look for an overland escape route. And this became the Belt and Road. And so this was a kind of an overland escape from the encirclement that would go all the way across Central Asia and then to Europe and to Africa and create this large uh, connected uh, economic trade block through logistics and, uh, and, uh, and uh, connections. But uh, one of the key legs of this was Myanmar. So Myanmar, the China-Myanmar economic corridor was one of the most important parts of the Belt and Road because this was the most immediate way of breaking out of the choke point of the South China Sea. So the Chinese started to develop, you know, the Kakfu deep sea port and they were building pipelines and railways and uh, also dams. And as this was happening, um, the US did not like this. And therefore they decided that um, they needed to exert more pressure. And so that's when you saw the, you know, the NED came in with, you know, large projects, large millions of dollars of support to, uh, you know, various groups to kind of fracture and splinter the country. Uh, and at the same time, you started to see the uh, delegitimation of Aung San Suu Kyi because 
you know, rather than, uh, you know, kind of pivoting away from China and pivoting away from uh, the military, she was actually bringing herself closer to China. In fact, last year on January 17th and 18th, uh, the civilian administration signed 33 contracts on the, regarding the Belt and Road with China. And so, you know, she was in a very, very precarious position and having been delegitimated, uh, the military saw an opportunity to take back its power completely. They knew that, you know, since Aung San Suu Kyi was no longer, you know, the sainted, you know, crusader that the West had made her out to be, that they could take her down and the West would be without, uh, you know, without much recourse. And that's exactly what they did. You know, at the end of the November elections, they alleged massive electoral fraud. Uh, they took a note from the United States and then they triggered the coup and, Currently, the civilian government has been uh, put under wraps. Um, Aung San Suu Kyi herself is under arrest. Uh, and, and the military has declared a state of emergency for a year, during which time it will probably consolidate its uh, you know, structures uh, and, then, uh, and then continue. But it, it no longer wants to be subject to this kind of Western and uh, Western liberal control. Yes, you can see how smaller countries are caught up in this whole encirclement. Their internal politics are affected and they really can't avoid it, whether they're Myanmar or Vietnam or some other country. Everyone has to take sides, take positions and get factionalized over this whole situation. Uh, so it is in that vein a uh, it's somewhat reassuring that some peace groups in North America are looking at the militarization of the South China Sea and the U.S. military exercises in the Pacific as something that is a destabilizing force and a, and a militarizing force. And, uh, you know, obviously there are things we can and should do to protest how our own government is inflaming situations in the Asia Pacific regions. I know you're someone who does a lot of work on that subject. And again, people should look up your articles, again, one that caught my attention was mentioned earlier, the U.S. is set on a path to war with China. What is to be done? That one was in Counterpunch in October, and KJ collaborates with others sometimes and has articles in various publications. So I know it's a different time zone and everything, and we're really grateful and appreciative that you are with us today, and uh, I'll make sure that we can get this out there to people in Hamilton and through the podcast. So thanks very much for, for being with us on the program today. Thank you so much.